it kind of gives the movie a villain. And the villain is this general. And we're all mad at him at the end. He got Paul killed. You know, war is the villain of the book. And instead, it becomes more about this general. This lesser character, this this lesser general, no less, too. You know, just in charge of this sector. Um, I mean, these, these events had happened. There was fighting, actually, after Armistice, but it was isolated and random. You know, but like you said, it does kind of take away from what, like you said, the, the book is all about and, and, and kind of deflects us away from the larger picture here and like gives you like this, this easy scapegoat, you know, in it all, which which kind of cheapens, like you said, the, the overall effect of what uh, Remark was going for. Welcome, friends, to episode 266 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Edward Berger's 2022 film, All Quiet on the Western Front. And joining us this week in the trenches is a high school social sciences teacher, overall history buff, and one of our longest, oldest friends. Uh, welcome, Tom Leonard. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Looking forward to uh, discussing this with you. Thanks for joining us. We figured this was a this was a great one to have you on for because normally we we cover narrative filmmaking and narrative structured stories and books. And with this sort of having that history background, it just felt like the right time to have you on. Yeah, no, I was uh, I was super excited when you guys uh, pinged me for this. Kind of what I do on a daily basis is get to talk about these kinds of stories. World War One is definitely a, a really fascinating topic. So, uh, yeah, really stoked to uh, to be here. I- I've known you for many, many years. Um, you've been a long time uh, friend of the family. Honestly, you're a good friend of my younger brothers, and um, it's just it's cool to have someone on that that we know so well. Definitely something I, I've maybe hoped that you guys would bring me on for at some point. Uh, and I thought it would be pretty cool um, to talk yeah. about it. And uh, yeah, it definitely, I think family is definitely the right word. So I'm um, looking forward to getting into this with you guys. And I mean, this is the kind of things we've been, we've been talking about since we were, we were kids. So yeah, it's like Fast and the Furious, right? Family, family first. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just like, just like Fast and the Furious. <laughs> no different. And these, in these, uh, you know war shows it's always about the like friendships right like that's the one thing people can hold on to it's a bunch of young men who who formed these bonds of friendship so yeah this feels appropriate to me so uh f- let's start with your history with the material did you have you read the book all quiet on the western front before and then had you seen the film or any of the other adapted works um i, I know this this film has actually been adapted numerous times uh actually the only one that i've seen is the most recent one um and now i've, I've seen it a couple times uh now doing the show um and i've read through the book uh, a couple times as well so i've read a fair amount of world war one history fairly well versed in it by no means an expert but you know with regards to that how where does this stand in terms of world war one works like is this a really important novel as far as that's concerned because that's that's what i've derived from our coverage so far this was actually uh, a huge uh release and made and actually made big waves particularly in germany so much so that when the nazis took over they actually banned this book and it was one of the books that they removed it, that was uh very big i mean this book is sold for Ever. He, he was labeled like an enemy of the state by Goebbels or something like, yeah, not not happy about this book. Not at all, because uh, it paints a very negative light. And actually, you know, the author spent his life writing about that. So 
this seems like a unique depiction because it's showing the horrors of war. Is there, have you found other, I guess in historic tellings of World War One, there's probably a fair amount of talking of trench warfare and that kind of thing. But from what I understand at the time, a lot of it was heroics and what, what someone, like the glory of what certain countries had done. Yeah, yeah the idea of nationalism was really big. So anything that went against that um, was seen as like taboo. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, you're unpatriotic, you're not a good nationalist or from whatever country you're from, regardless of, of nation. A lot of the books that talk about this, especially particular memoirs, they're brutally honest and 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 actually are in, in some regards even more vividly brutal than this book. Uh, they're actually more descriptive. Um, and so there's, I was interesting when I was watching the, watching the movie to see how they portrayed the brutalness, because I would argue that the book is far more brutal than uh, than the movie itself in terms of what they describe. Um, although it does seem kind of brief sometimes, they kind of just like whiff over a lot of things. Interesting. I mean, one of the things that I took away from this film was how they really captured the terror, just the feeling of horror that you would have in those moments. Um, and they showed plenty of pretty brutal stuff. Um, they did. Senseless violence is to- fully on display. Um, but, you know, I, I see what you're saying about like, like certain details that were really hard hitting in the book that that didn't make it in. Um, and part of that is, I think, just differences in medium, right? Like being able to show versus like really kind of imagine what it would be like to experience something and embody it in a way that you can when you're reading fiction. Um, it's just a little different, but I, th- I think they did a good job in this version. I do agree that they, that they did a good job and, and you are limited in what you can show on screen and, and how you're going to make that look authentic. And, and should, should you, should people see that too? You know, I argue that that's, that's a whole nother, you know, thing. World War I was incredibly brutal. And they did about as good as I've seen in any movie, to be honest. Last week, I talked about what my expectations were for the book before I had read it. And I thought a lot of it was going to be trench warfare. And then this movie sort of refocuses on that. And so, like, I would say more than half of this movie is spent in the trenches. Um, And there were some things that were taken out that I felt like we were I was missing from the book, like um, his return home. Paul's return home was was like a really powerful way to, t- to address PTSD, especially for this time period. But then in losing something, we also gain something with the visceral nature of seeing the stuff on screen and seeing it happen before us. It gives you something that like you can imagine a lot, but actually seeing the horrors and feeling like you were there. This this film gave me a lot of stress and anxiety, and, and it really put me in the shoes of someone in the trenches. Like you said, Tom, maybe, maybe one of the best depictions of that that I've seen, just how terrifying it would be and how you know it almost feels unsurvivable like it's it's crazy that anyone made it out uh, absolutely um and, and i think one of the, the things that we like you said that we gain from this is that you you see the unrelenting nature of the war um and that's what drove a lot of the the, the soldiers mad was the fact that this was the first modern war the first time humans had been under threat of death 24 7 365 whenever they're in the trenches that's not normal most human engagements were you know maybe a few days the battles were and then that was it you get a break and you know somebody wins somebody loses you retreat you go home now in world war one modern warfare it's every single day every second of every single day you could die and everyone around you is done and the horrors of the new technologies introduced like gas and oh, yeah. you know the machine guns and even the tanks eventually like the flamethrowers like just stuff that people had never seen before that tank introduction in this film is a horror movie like <laughs> when it rolls through the smoke like that terrifying and you know i 
again, I think something that surprised me about this project overall is getting the German side, get, seeing the horrors from the German side is, is I feel like a depiction I normally wouldn't expect to get that idea of the winners write the history books, right? Like who, so like at the end of the war, the, the armistice that they had to sign was not friendly to them in any way. And I think that they harbored a lot of that and it led into some of the nationalism and some of the some of what we saw with Hitler's youth and everybody coming up around that era. Absolutely. Um, actually, the uh, the Treaty of Versailles and, and which is what the armistice is eventually going to lead to um, in 1919 was was so bad that many historians look at it today as like that's one of the major catalysts for World War Two um, and contributed to the rise of Nazism and all that. And they were able to point to all the mistreatment that Germany received in the post-war. Um, so, yeah, you're spot on. Interesting that w- this movie recontextualizes some of what I thought the book was trying to do. The book was very much boots on the ground, Paul's POV, whether he's whether he's in the trenches or he's at home or he's in a hospital. And then we get this other viewpoint in this movie, which I thought was an interesting decision to give us that political side of things, which they would have no knowledge of. You know, the soldiers wouldn't have kind of known. But I guess for the audience's sake. For this film, they wanted us to be aware of kind of how senseless some of this was near the end because of how close the the agreements were and how, you know, the fighting went to the very last moment. It felt like to me in the book, all the political um, stuff going on and like the, the leaders of the country negotiating things and like even entering the war, all of that was at such a remove from the soldiers that they they were caught up in the repercussions of it, but they almost had no understanding of it. Like it didn't really matter. Um, it just was the reality and it made everything seem so out of their control that it added to the horror. Whereas here it was kind of dangled as this, like maybe there'll be a ceasefire in time to save Paul. And it created a certain tension, which I can see why they would want that for a movie. Um, but it did also change that focus a little bit as all of a sudden we're now thinking about the war in a larger sense. We're thinking about Germany in a larger sense and we're not quite as like laser focused on Paul and his experience. I think that ties into a lot of the themes uh, that you see a lot in the book too, which is about the youth and the wasted youth and showing how in in the movie they show how it comes full circle when you have, uh, I think it's Heinrich in the very first scene, you know, he dies and his clothes are recycled Um, and they just kind of showing you how like this war machine just churns through all the German youth. And so I think, them tying that in kind of linked that all together. And like you said, you don't really, that's not really mentioned in the book at all. And like you said, the soldiers would not have any idea. They just know that they're in this like meat grinder and this carnage day in, day out. And it's just survive essentially. Yeah. One of our listeners mentioned they shall not grow old, which is Peter Jackson's like documentary that he put together archival footage and, and sort of through effects magic was able to add color and add some, some smoothening out of, the frames to sort of modernize it and, and l- let us see it in a, in a way that we hadn't before, because I think we see a lot of this footage and we see it in black and white. And it doesn't feel quite as as close. And the reason I bring it up is I went and watched some of the clips again because I, I had seen it in the past, but I was just curious, like, OK, after seeing the German perspective, I also want to remember like what this Peter Jackson British side of the war felt like. And it was so interesting because a lot of the people who are their older interviews and a lot of the people speaking they would speak about the horrors, but then there was always this sense of hope almost to the to the British side. Like they always had a good outlook. It seems like even after the fact now, a lot of them say like, I still would have served. And what I what I get in watching this movie is I would think no one could say anything close to that. But some of these soldiers like were able to come back and, and I guess over years of 
of reflection think that it was still in the best interest of the of the countries yeah and i think that's striking as well when i when i watched um uh, they should not grow old how many soldiers were talked about like they were it's like cheerio let's just go off in the battle and the sign because that's what everybody was doing and then they got there and the ones that miraculously survived and then they were just speaking about the war almost like fondly like yeah i would i would go back to those days you know and then they have the little fifes and drums playing in the background as you hear the voiceovers and you're just sitting there like how could everybody ever come to that conclusion? Um, that was pretty astonishing to me, honestly, um, particularly after everything, you know, that we've seen and read uh, since the Great War. Now, I haven't seen that documentary, um, but it seems to me like there's a lot of survivorship going on here. Like these are the ones who lived. So they're looking at a time in their life and contextualizing it. And they've they've learned to live with what they went through. They've learned to like compartmentalize that and build on that. But of course, so many people didn't get to survive that. Um, so it's like they kind of can't speak for all the people who died there because I think they might have a different take on whether or not they would like to go back <laughs> or do it differently. <laughs> I think many of them address that as well. Yeah, I, I think it's just there's there's a certain level of nostalgia maybe that they have for it because it was their youth and because they were young. But at the same time, they do you know they talk about how horrific it was at times and how it became normalized for you to watch like someone, a friend fall right next to you and you just like were desensitized to it. And I think that's one of the major things to think about too with with modern warfare and, and, and specifically in this war, how it was just dehumanizing. Like so many of the things that they were doing was just desensitizing you to all of the atrocities and everything that went on to the point that when you got back and they, they addressed this and they shall not grow old as well, um, people can't relate. They don't understand what it what it could have possibly been like. They they think they know what it's like, but you can't describe it to them either. You were talking about this earlier, James. The choice they made to not include the visit back, the leave. Um, it, it's an interesting one because it did. They ended up including a couple of scenes where they would like theorize about like, oh, when we go home, we're not going to be able to fit in. Where people aren't going to understand. We didn't get to see that in a scene. Um, so I was kind of missing that too. Like I I. I think it's more powerful to see just how out of sorts they are when they return home. Um, and, and part of it, I think, is because they made this choice to like show the beginning of the war for Paul and then jump all the way to the end of the war. And they skipped over all that time on the front, whereas uh, in the book, we got a little bit more of a journey through, including moments where he would go on leave. Um, and, and the choice to, to change the chronology a little bit for the film um, in some ways worked and, and added a certain tension, but in other ways you lose some stuff. Like you said, that, that the scene home is really where, where Paul tackles that um, with it, with his parents and, and, his, and, you know, and he really can't speak honestly with his mom. And he just basically lies to everybody, you know, about what's going on in the war in the book. And in the movie, it's just Paul doesn't really get to grapple with that. And so they have to use the other characters to kind of, like you said, sort of wrestle with it. But they, that's one of the things that is definitely lost. And it is it's like hypothetical, extremely hypothetical. And it's very brief, too, and just kind of like interjected. And that is one of the biggest things about this, you know, the lost generation, people coming back from World War One and just and really any war, any, any war coming back and being completely unable to relate with anybody around them uh, whatsoever. And that was one of the big things. A lot of these uh, the people that wrote memoirs about particularly World War One. Um, and, and stressing that just how detached they are and and unable to cope with this, you know. And like you said, I think back to your original point, 
many of the people and they shall not grow old, I think, like you said, it's a coping mechanism. It's, it's, a, it's a way for you to just kind of make sense of the horrors that you saw and be able to live with it for the rest of your life. It was terrible, though. You, you know, we hear about Vietnam vets coming back and, and not being accepted back into society and being seen in a certain light because people didn't agree with the war. But even in uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, they, they mention there was mass unemployment and there were people, these all these men coming back from war were in need of jobs. And there were often signs posted that said like service, former service members need not apply, that sort of thing. And how they, they were seen as like damaged goods in some cases. And it's just like, you know, that's the that's the true tragedy too, is like you you see all of this death, all of this destruction, and, and then like, you know, you want to come home a hero and typically it's not really the, the, the outcome. The, the stats that were given at the end of this film, um, it, it, and I've read this kind of stuff before about particular battles, but like just the number of deaths, like three million deaths in like this, what was it, like a one square mile or something? Like it's such a small area in France where there was three million deaths over the course of a few years during the war. That number is unimaginable to me to think about that, right? Like in such a small amount of space. And all those bodies and all that blood and like they really showed that here with like the mud and the, like everything was so gross and dirty um, that I, I could see why this movie got a lot of visual awards because it was striking. And to that point, honestly, they didn't do enough. And that's one of the disturbing parts for this. Um, there's a really good book about the Battle of Verdun uh, between Germany and France called The Price of Glory by Alistair Horn. And it the documents in great detail that battle. It more humans died in a smaller square mile area for the battle. That battle took place in any spot on earth in the human history. And you read about what the soldiers went through and, and just like being in the same trenches and the same shell holes with the same bodies and bones and bits of everything churned up by artillery over and over and over again for months and months on end. It, it's unfathomable. Like they probably couldn't show it because they would have like people probably wouldn't have believed they it wouldn't. if they'd shown that. Absolutely not. And and, and that and that was just one battle. That sort of thing happened all over the place on 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 the uh, on the Western Front, with trenches being occupied over and over again and being dug. And while you're digging, you're just digging through the bodies of people that are already there. I mean, the most uh, you you can't even describe it. You can't. And like when you read it in the books, you're just like. What is this? You know, it's, 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 you know, it's one of those cases where truth is stranger than fiction. So it blows my mind too to, to think about how, how bad it could have been. And, and, and you saying they didn't go far enough because this, this is the kind of film that as I watched it, it felt relentless to watch as well. Like so much, I felt myself becoming desensitized to it at times. And I felt like how it was, and, Credit to, as you, as you were mentioning, Luke, the cinematography in this film, because I think they do a great job here of juxtaposing what the book was also mentioning in, in some cases, and that's the beauty of the world and the destruction of the world. And you see these shots of like, you think of the, the beginning of the film, there's the shot of the, the baby fox. And there's these these ex massive, expansive, ultra wide shots that show off like how beautiful this year, these European countries are with, the, you know, the mist rolling in these giant forests and and that's juxtaposed with like human beings in trenches, blood everywhere, people wrapped around, uh, you know, wire, razor wire and, and just the ways that I mean, there's one of the things that stands out the most to me is there's a scene where we have characters walking up and a body's been blown up into a tree and we see like a pretty close up image of that and how affecting that is and how they, they went pretty far with it in terms of the effects and in terms of in the set design. And, and that's one thing that I think this film got 
best production design and best cinematography at the at the most recent academy awards and rightfully so because i think there's some amazing things done with the camera here like i said some of this some of these wide shots and some of the things that they they're able to do with the cinematography running through the trenches with the with the soldiers but the production design is incredible and i read about this they filmed in prague uh and they used a military area that was just nearby two different runways at an airfield and they actually churned up all this and built all of these trenches and it was the size of 10 football fields so when they were doing these trench runs, they were really doing realistic depictions of like the, the distance you would have to run through no man's land to get yeah. into the other trenches. And the way that they built the trenches, they actually, for, for filming purposes, they built them a little wider than they actually were in the war too. So just imagine them being even more cramped than what we're seeing. And, you know, people crawling over top of each other, all this water coming in. That was one of the things that like, you know, I, I always used to think about was like how terrible the conditions were with the rats and the, and then, but ultimately when you get trench foot and like you're starting to lose limbs based off of not even injuries you're sustaining in the field, it's just like living conditions and things like that. That's how terrible it can be. And, and I thought that the, the production in terms of cinematography is showing that and also production design was incredible here. And, and the director of photography, James Friend, uh, he noted, he's like, it's one of the most beautiful productions I've ever been able to capture in camera, just based on like the, what they created for the, for the production design and, and like this, the, this set that they created. Um, you know, a lot of those explosives that you see going off, a lot of the things that all these 100 to 200 extras we see running all in the field all at the same time to capture that what it would be like to actually be there um it was incredible and and it reminds me of like i'm sure you guys also saw this movie 1917 mm -hmm. that came out I somewhat recently yeah. incredible it's like it's uh meant to seem like all one take mm -hmm. like the whole film is meant to be like a pseudo one take and uh that film does another great job of showing like when you leave the trenches and you start running and just like all the shells are are smashing around you and people are falling left and right. It like when when we don't see it and we read about it, at least myself, I'm very visual in this way. When I just read about it, I, I have a certain understanding of what it is. But when I see it on screen, I think this is the kind of thing that that makes this a really great anti-war film is you look at it and you're like, how could anyone fathom being in the scenario and how could you survive and how, like you just think about how lucky it is and that's a lot of the veterans who came back are like i don't know how i didn't get sprayed with machine gun fire or hit by a random shell um it's it's unbelievable and and uh, really powerful stuff yeah that's i really fascinating about the about the production of it because i mean the scale the scope and scale of, of world war one in the trenches is just astounding um and the fact that they're able to you know recreate that to that extent is is one of the, the like i said earlier is by far probably the best World War One movie that I've, that I've seen in terms of recreating that. Um, I have an anecdote about the bud, actually. Sorry, it escapes me where, where I, I read this, uh, but I, th I think it was the price of glory. Um, but the soldiers are walking back to the front lines, like through the communication trenches on their way there. The mud was so bad that if you didn't walk along little duck boards, which are like, you know, these little wooden planks to get through the mud and you stepped off of that, you could fall into, you know, a waterlogged shell hole that was just like the most viscous mud that would almost just like swallow you up like quicksand uh, and you would get stuck and, and they couldn't pull you out of it. And so you would go to the front lines, serve your 24 or 48 hours there and walk back and see the same guy stuck in the mud. And he's at this point, when you started there, he was up to his knees and you know that if you go in and get him, you're going to get stuck 
and boom, now you're both in trouble. Uh, and then you come back the third day and he's up to his waist and then up to his shoulders. The next thing you know, only his head's sticking out there and he's begging you to put a bullet in his head. And these are real life accounts of soldiers writing these things down and recording their, their events. And, and it's, we have primary source documents discussing it. It's, I, you, you can't, like I said, you can't fathom these things and there's no way you could put them in film or, or make the mud on the, you know, the, the actors run through the mud and do that sort of thing. You say that, but actually in, there's a behind the scenes feature at on Netflix that I advise everybody goes and checks out. And they actually, they talk about how dangerous it was and how the actors had to be like trained because running through, you know, holes and trenches in your knees and your yeah, ankles you're true. very likely to get injured um so they had to be trained for this and and there was a there was a story that the director was telling about james friend the director of photography he actually fell into the mud at one point up to his waist and they, when they were location scouting no one was around and it was it was after dark oh wow and he literally almost died he had he pulled himself out he somehow got out of it but fell into one of these like like you said it's like quicksand basically and he was like up to his up to his waist and and, and it's like crazy wow. to think about they're reenacting these things but the danger can still be there in some cases um totally yeah, pretty pretty wild and that's that's a great anecdote because before covering this project i never would have thought about the mud being being such a threat the most mundane of things it kind of reminds me of that uh always sunny episode where d gets stuck in the bog <laughs> yes so good with the waitress doesn't she they swap right yeah yeah, yeah. She she finally baits her into helping her and then throws her in the mud and walks away and leaves her. <laughs> the bog in, where were they, Ireland? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, I continue to, talking about the mud, but just be amazed at, like, how many different kinds of mud they were able to pull off in this movie. Like, it had different colors. Like, you could tell when it had some sort of chemical in it or it was implying that it did. And then, of course, all the different kinds of blood. It would be swirling. Sometimes it would be saturated. Sometimes it'd be dark. Sometimes it'd be lighter. There was even a scene where just, like, a character's walking and stepping in different puddles, and every puddle was, like, a different kind of gross, viscous mud. Um, and I was, I thought that was really effective. And then, of course, like, Paul getting it on his face, he's getting, like, different kinds of mud, and it hardens on one side, yeah. and you can only see his eyes. I thought that was all really well done. Yeah, how, how like, white his eyes were in juxtaposition with, with the mud. That was something in his, in his teeth. Like, it was just, like, like, there was no human left of him, you know? It was so filthy. Yeah, that inhuman look, too, often came when he was doing something that was, like, like with the stabbing in the, in the hole or, like, when, yeah. a moment where he's sort of lost his humanity is reflected by the makeup department actually putting that on him. And, uh, again, shout out to the makeup department as well because the, a lot of the prosthetics and things that they created, I mean, it's incredible how, how good it looked in camera. And, um, yeah, they, they even the makeup artist was like, I didn't realize how many different versions of mud on the face you could do until we because, you know, they have like the black mud or they have like yeah. the more clay like mud, mud looked and, different in like every scene he was in. They would like it would change and it would look different and it would react to like him getting sprayed with something or getting blasted. And they were able to keep it changing the whole time. It was very cool. So the filmmaker Edward Berger is a German, Austrian and Swiss director. So notably, this is the first adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front that is by Germans. Oh, OK. It's a German language, German directed version of All Quiet on the Western Front. Before this, we, we didn't have that. So, you know, I think that's important. Yeah, I didn't realize that was the first one. And I should also add that if you go to watch it on Netflix, they have like a dubbed English dubbed version and then like a German version with subtitles. I started out on dub because that was like the default. And I was watching it for a little bit, but then as soon as we got to like a quieter scene where people were just actually talking, it was so weird how it was not synced up and I, I immediately shifted it. So I, I, yeah, I recommend watching the German version with the English subtitle. I, I recommend that as well. I, I watched both. Um, the German was better. I just, in general, I, I recommend 
watching the native language of whatever the <laughs> film is. Yeah. Personally, that's what I've come to appreciate. Totally. So Edward Berger, he notably directed German films Jack, All My Loving, and All Quiet on the Western Front. And for the latter, Berger won multiple awards, including the Oscar for Best International Feature Film, BAFTA Awards for Best Direction and Adapted Screenplay. So Edward Berger attended Tisch School of the Arts at NYU, where he uh, finished his studies in directing in 1994. At NYU, he created numerous short films, which were screened at many international film festivals. He gathered his first work experience at the U.S. independent production company Good Machine, working, among others, on the films of Ang Lee and Todd Haynes. Additionally, Edward Berger gave lectures and carried out workshops at Columbia University and at Universität der Kunste Berlin and at the HFF Potsdam. In 2012, his film A Good Summer was awarded the Grimm Prix. His film Jack was invited for the Berlinale 2014 and awarded the 2015 German Film Award in Silver for the Best Feature Film. I also want to mention Leslie Patterson and Ian Stokel, who without these two writers, we wouldn't have this film. It took them 16 years to get this film made. They acquired an option on the film's rights for the book in 2006 and struggled to get it made, but also to find money to renew the option. In a desperate move, Patterson entered Xterra triathlons in 2011 to try to get the top prize of $20,000 and won, which enabled her to renew the option, which cost between ten and 15000 per year. Over the years, she managed to fund the renewals of the option by winning five triathlon world championships. Patterson and Stokel estimate they spent around $200,000 over 16 years to maintain the option. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> that's some, uh, yeah, if you really believe in yourself and you happen to be a good uh, athlete, I guess that's a way to go. <laughs> that is ridiculously awesome. So cool. So I, I had to mention that. We would not have the film, especially in its current form, yeah. which is, um, you know, I think a masterpiece. I think like the general consensus is going to be that. I am really curious to watch that 30s adaptation now, which I'm sure we'll end up doing as a bonus episode because I want to know how many of these plot decisions mimic that in the original 30s version or if this is all new I, i'm also very interested to check that out but from what i understand they were doing going back to the source material trying to be faithful to the source material to an extent rather than doing a remake of any kind but you know how these things go like it's it's hard to not be influenced when looking back at something that was successful and also won academy awards also got you know banned by Nazis yeah. and all kinds of shit, which we talked about last week. I read a story about the original um, theatrical run of this, and I, I don't know if it was in. It must of have been in Germany one? of of the 1930s version. Oh, okay. In, in I believe it was in Germany. Nazis were releasing like rats into the theaters and stuff, trying to like get people to not watch the movie. So, <laughs> wow. I, I did think it was interesting, actually, how they adapted so many little details from the from the book into. Uh, into the movie um, just like little things where he, they talk about like bayonetting somebody versus using a spade that's what Paul uses in the movie most of the time you see the spade repeatedly actually um, as like the melee weapon of choice uh, it, it, you know I, again I would be really curious to see that 1930 version as well and like how true it is to the source material I, I definitely would be interested in that Okay, so moving from the filmmaker into the plot, in 1917, three years into World War One, 17 year old Paul Boimer enlists in the Imperial German Army alongside his friends Albert Kropp, Franz Müller, and Ludwig Bem. They listen to a patriotic speech by a school official and unknowingly receive uniforms from soldiers killed in a previous battle. After they are deployed in northern France, they are befriended by Stanislaus Kat Kaczynski, an older soldier. 
Their romantic view of the war is shattered by the re realities of trench warfare on the Western Front, and Ludwig is killed by artillery on the first night. On November 7, 1918, German official Matthias Erzberger, weary of mounting losses, meets with German high command to persuade them to begin armistice talks with the Allied powers. Meanwhile, Paul and Kat steal a goose from a farm to share with Albert Franz and another veteran, Chauden Stackfleet, with whom they have grown close behind the front in Champagne. Kat, who is illiterate, gets Paul to read him a letter from his wife and worries that he will be unable to reintegrate into peacetime society. Franz spends the night with a local French woman and brings back her scarf as a souvenir. I thought it was an interesting change because in the book we have this scene where He's with um, another soldier who has been wounded and is dying in the hospital. And there's this whole thing about them trying to get his boots um, because they're going to be given to someone else. And he wants to re you know, use them for somebody that they know. And I felt like that scene is what becomes instead this opening um, where we see uh, the uniforms getting passed on from dead soldiers onto the new soldiers and ends up being the one that is assigned um, to uh, to Paul. And it sort of creates this like, yeah, it's like it's setting up the machine that's been churning through soldiers, reusing stuff, giving it to him. Um, and then we see him get this assigned this job when he first arrives at the front, go collect these dog tags or whatever they were called, um, which then, of course, ends up getting passed on to another soldier at the end of the film. So there's definitely this like cyclical churning through young people uh, theme getting, sh getting shown here that I thought was a clever twist on what we actually got in the book the way that the film sets it up as these friends and and i know the the book does as well but we see these friends and they're they're leaving school and they're so excited to get these uniforms and they, they can't wait everyone can't wait to get them on they immediately start putting the uniforms on as soon as they get them um and and then they're they're marching with the flowers in their in, in their uniform and they're so excited they're singing these like happy songs and their their impression of what this war is going to be like is so different from the reality and like how quickly that snaps they snap to reality and we see you know they're having to, to bucket the water with their helmets out of the trench and one of their friends loses it like right away um he the the friend with the glasses i'm not sure which of the four he is but he um you know he's starting to break down when they're when they're getting shelled for the first time and that scene um is the first time that I was thinking, you know, I was always of, of the opinion like, okay, you're really exposed when you're in the trench, but if they have these little alcoves that you can get into, these little bunkers that you can get into, more than likely you'll, you'll be somewhat okay. And then the reality of that situation is these old, older soldiers who are veterans and they've been there know when to be in the bunker and when to not be in the bunker. And like navigating that is so much built on luck, like a, a stray shell could hit the bunker at any time and collapse it and ultimately that's what we see with with paul here and when he's buried and and like survives it and then finds his friend and you're talking about the dog tax breaking the dog tax off and having to deal with that for the first time that the enormity of the situation definitely hits these characters very quickly and i thought the filmmaking reflected that uh, yeah and I, I think they they tie that element into in the book as well with the with the randomness because in, in the movie you have the the one soldier who loses his mind um, and there's a section in the book where they're trying to console the new recruits 
So in, in the book, it's flipped where they're the young ones losing their minds. And in the movie, the new recruits are the ones losing, uh, they're the new recruits losing their minds. And the one guy rushes out of the, the bunker, immediately gets blown up. Um, and then moments later, they're like, okay, get out of the bunker. And then, yeah. you know, so, so, so they're like, oh, what the hell do I do? You know, like, I just wanted this guy explode. And now you want me to run out there? Like, what, what, what are you crazy? Um, or or the, the soldier that was beating his head against the wall in the movie. That's, you know, also what the new recruits were doing. You know, they said, they talk about like, like he's like, like a goat just pounding his head over and over, um, you know, and this is, it's interesting how they were able to intertwine uh, all the different anecdotes throughout the book. And they did use so many of them in the movie in different ways. So it was really interesting to um, see how they use the source, stayed true to the source material, but also created their very unique version of it. Totally. Um, I got to shout out the like sound design for this movie um, and the music. I thought there, it was such a, such a fresh take on, a score for a war film. I had never experienced something like that. It was almost like this industrial soundscape where all of a sudden just like random drum beats would come in or this like just wall of sound like like thing that would come in just periodically. It didn't feel like it fit the film at first to me either. I was like, why? It felt out of place. Like, like a Hans Zimmer, you know, like yeah. an inception thing. It really grew on me though. <laughs> but it's unsettling and, it, and I think it keeps you off balance and it sort of underlines the horror of what's going on and it makes it feel like there's always another horror that's about to come. And these like, cause often it was during like quieter scenes. And then all of a sudden that music would start coming in and you just know that what's coming is going to be so much worse. Um, and just, yeah, like the random snare would just hit at weird times. And it wasn't like uh, with any sort of beat to it. It was always just like a random hit. Um, and it, would, it kept me so off balance, but I thought it was super effective. It, very unsettling. Yeah. And, and like, and to your point, uh, foreboding in a lot of ways. And sometimes nothing happens, but you're just like, oh, you know, what, what do I expect? I don't know. <laughs> I also love that. So we have that sort of like overbearing score. And then we have the so at times very like operatic, like gentle music when they're like together having a meal or if they're out in the field, they see these women walking with the cows at one point. And like the way that like both of the things are encapsulating like the the whole experience is that there are other things that that they find enjoyment in and uh, you know just to note it they this also won best original score at the most recent academy awards i didn't even know yeah, that i actually yeah. watched that one <laughs> randomly when i turned it on <laughs> that's cool so and to address all four just in a row because i know i've mentioned them on and off but it won best international feature film best original score best production design and best cinematography and speaking of cinematography though i, I didn't I didn't mention this before, but like the way they use light um, and the way that it cuts through darkness in particular, it seemed like they really were interested in like having and lights moving. They had the flares over the battleground and then you'd have like lights through floorboards or you'd have like uh, lamps, headlamps where the cars cutting through the darkness and, you know, somebody holding a light. There was always like a uh, it reminded me, honestly, of like Roger Deakins. Um, how he does that that light through darkness um, stuff that he's, you know, becomes a master at over the years. And, you know, to me, that's high praise because he's like one of the masters. Um, and, yeah, I can see why this was up for so many awards. So even in the scenes where it wasn't necessarily like showing off the, the beauty of nature, it would find a dark beauty even in something kind of horrible or, or, or something that you were seeing like. I think of the city when when they find all the all the soldiers who were gassed because they took their mask oh, off yeah. too early. The, the you, you get that natural light coming through those giant windows and how it's horrific 
and it's like very industrial, but there's something beautiful about the way that the light is coming in and the angle that the light is coming in. And uh, one of the, you know, couple things that I love to see, little particulates floating. <laughs> yeah. And then and then the haze. They add so much to a scene because it like it gives that rich texture that that lets you if it, it feels like just just that it feels rich. Like you, there's so much to sink your teeth into with with each image. And, and even the flares in the book, there's reference constantly actually too. And so I was glad to see that they use that uh, a lot in the movie and plays into the whole lighting effect that you guys are are, are mentioning. So one thing I'll, I'll bring up my, I don't know, I feel like I've had a couple of small criticisms, but one of the things that I did miss in this adaptation was I felt like there was an opportunity to have maybe Paul um or at least one of the characters be a little more eloquent and like actually say some of the absolutely incredible lines from the book. And there we get a few here or there, but not like there is such a striking use of language in the book that I loved reading it. And that was the main thing I felt like I was missing. And I know that it's really hard and you're trying to translate the beauty of the language into the beauty of film, right? And the beauty of cinematography, but man, I wanted some of that language, a little more of it to make it into the movie. And I, I felt like I was missing some of that just because like Eric Maria remarks words are just so good and so incredible. Like you said, though, I like to think that the interpretation was done visually like that was the, yeah. that was the hope. You know, I think that the written word gives you a certain amount of leeway to use your imagination and then. When given just something visually, it's like a painting. You're, you're just left to sort of interpret what's what's being put forth. So in that way, it's more abstract. And I can understand you wanting like maybe something a little more concrete to be like to give you that sense. But well, Paul was described as being college educated or intelligent. He can read and write. And like that was something that Pat would say. And so I thought there was an opportunity for him to say some of the lines. I, I just I, I missed that. Yeah, I, I can I can see that for sure. There definitely was it was opportunities to, to mention something. I think a lot of that too in the book was a lot of Paul's internal thoughts. Um, so they would have had you know obviously had to have him uh, you know vocalize those and make it seem natural, I guess, in the movie. And then maybe they yeah, and maybe that's the challenge, right? Because if it doesn't feel like it fits with the dialect you've developed and the the way these characters speak to one another, I could see it being a problem. But I don't know. I I just think it could have been done. Cat and Paul go and get this goose. There's this there's this farmer who has a gun and like yeah. right away I'm sensing some tension there. Sure. And as soon as we saw that farm again, like nearing yeah. the end of the film, I was like, fuck. <laughs> was like, well, let's, let's move on in the, in the timeline yeah. so we can get to some of those later scenes. All right. So on November 9th, Erzberger and the German delegation board a train bound for the forests of Campania to negotiate a ceasefire. Paul and his friends go on a mission to find 60 missing recruits sent to re reinforce their unit and discover that they were killed by gas after taking off their masks too soon. General Friedrichs, who opposes the armistice talks, orders an attack before French reinforcements arrive. That night, Erzberger's delegation reaches the force of Compagnie and Paul's regiment is sent to the front to prepare to attack the French lines. On November 10th, Supreme Allied commander Ferdinand Falk gives the Germans 72 hours to accept the non-negotiable Allied terms. Meanwhile, the German attack takes the French front line after hand-to-hand -hand fighting, but is routed by combined arms counterattack, in which the French use Saint-Chamond tanks to overcome German defenses. Franz is separated from the group and Albert dies trying to surrender. Trapped in a crater in no man's land with a French soldier, Paul stabs him and watches him die slowly becoming remorseful and asking for forgiveness from his dead body. 
we, we definitely set up this dynamic where we're seeing the armistice negotiations happening and they keep dangling it as this like, oh, maybe they're going to get saved by the peace talks. Maybe something will happen. But then we see this, we get introduced to this general who's very war hungry. And he's also clearly like trying to like achieve some sort of glory for himself that he never got to because of his father and all this stuff. We learned some of that. Um, and then we see some negotiations happening. Um, and all of that is like going on at the same time that we're seeing the horrors of war. Um, and, and it, I think they do a good job of showing just how, like how, like they're on this fancy train and they're all eating like, you know, elaborate meals. And it does seem that the one guy, I forget his name, who's like doing the main negotiations. He seems to be like at least aware. Daniel Brühl. Daniel Brühl. He's the good, he's the good German. Baron Zemo? Yeah. 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 <laughs> that, you're right. It is Zemo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he seems like he's the one guy who kind of gets it because his, his son has died on the front and he kind of gets like how this is all horrible. And he, he keeps asking for like a ceasefire, but they're not, they're not approving it. I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about this because of, again, how it shifts the focus away a little bit and it introduces this other whole element that is not present in the book. I agreed, and that's I, I brought that up earlier in the episode because I felt that way. But as time has gone on and I've thought about it since I watched, I appreciate it for those that maybe aren't that informed about World War One. Yeah. I think that it does give some good texture and some good background to that. And and Tom, do you know like how accurate these this kind of stuff was? Actually, it's quite accurate. Uh, the location uh, for Fafak being there, he was the uh, supreme Allied general of the of the war. Actually, so he was the big dog for for the Allies, including the, the British, uh, who was in charge of all the forces. Um, and I, I, for me, I, I actually find that quite interesting because that scene represents um, something that's going to stick in Germany's, you know, craw. Yeah, thank you. Uh, stick in their <laughs> craw, and actually that train car is actually going to be preserved, kept in like Paris, I believe, uh, and preserved throughout the war. When Hitler conquers Paris in World War II, he's going to take that train car, remove it back to the same spot and make France capitulate in 1940 in the same spot in the same train car. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting thing uh, to kind of throw in the movie and make that fairly authentic um, to what actually transpired in, in World War One, with the armistice and the, you know, the 11th day, 11th month, 11th hour, that whole thing, uh, which is another, you know, famous thing for Armistice Day. Was there this like attack ordered, you know, to, to coincide with the signing and all that? No, actually, I mean, there may have been like one off attacks, uh, you know, across the front, but that was largely fabricated for the uh, for the movie, just to kind of add like the suspense. It felt it felt a little too yeah. That, that, perfect that was for that. my my complaint about the movie was was the the mean angry German general who was just like I'm here for glory, blah blah blah. I mean, there were those guys in the German military, right? Um, and in all the militaries, but that was kind of Hollywoodish, in my opinion. That I, that it, I agree. <laughs> having him die, uh, I mean, we're not there yet, but like having having Paul get stabbed, like as the bells are starting to ring for, you know what I mean? It was like, too, it was a little too perfectly yeah. dramatic. I don't know. And in the book, it's like a month before the armistice, which was horrifying our argument of itself. It didn't need to be yep. like the moment of the, you know, the, the ceasefire. It makes it more dramatic. You know, it, it makes it more dramatic. Right. But, it does. It does. Uh, the, I, I do think it's interesting, you know, we're talking about this like evil German, like, general that just he's out for blood and it's railing against social democrats (laughs) there's commentary being made here right like it's germans made this film and so like you know i think they're they're trying to say like look what we're we're capable of and and, in so doing everyone everyone in the world is is kind of and this is that that rampant nationalism taken to the extreme right is where you're like it's about glory it's about the fatherland i'm really curious to know if it what kind of 
reputation this movie has in Germany today. Like, um, you know, this current, like this film, yeah, yeah this, this adaptation this of it. I honestly feel like it probably is well, you know, well received. Um, I, I, you know, I, I know go. that their right wing, right wing sentiment has been growing over there and there has been a whole like it's been growing over here too. Though, so <laughs> all over, honestly, all over the world. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I bet it's still controversial, but maybe with like a certain subset of society. I of imagine. course, yeah. I'm sure there are Americans that don't like this film. You know, like, <laughs> I don't know. There's, they're like maybe the the Germans were onto something. Like, yeah. yeah, a lot of Americans are just like we did. Honestly, we we don't spend a lot of time on uh, on World War One, and at least as far as like the nitty gritty details right. and stuff, it's like how it started and the Treaty of Versailles. Okay, that led to World War Two. The end. You know, they don't really get caught up with all the stuff in the middle. And then oftentimes we look at everything from a purely American point of view, and it's like, yes. what was going on at home while we were basically war profiteering throughout the entirety of the war? And and then at the very end, we're like, all right, the Warhawks win. You know, we, we you've sunk the Lusitania, you've sent the Zimmerman telegram, you know, you've done all these things. All right, let's, all right, now we can, we can finally go in there and fight this thing. So we, we basically just hung out and then waited to decide the winners is what you're trying to say. Yeah, more or less. Honestly, that was one of the things that broke Germany's back is that Russia goes and fights a revolution and Germany can take all of their forces from the Eastern front, move them over. Then as soon as that happens, that was another one of the catalysts to get the United States involved in the war as we were looking for excuses, uh, Woodrow Wilson was. And then yeah, you got all these fresh doughboys, as they were called, you know, storming into the trenches and fighting, fighting the Germans with, you know, all these like, let's go earn our glory thing. They're fresh into the war. And Germany was like, ah, <laughs> we're tired. <laughs> this has been going on yeah. for a while, man. We are we have jumped the gun a little bit because we already talked about this incredible scene where they rush the rush the French lines, take a you know, take a position and then the tanks come and drive them back. Um, but wow, what a sequence that is and just how horrifying the tanks are, like you said, James, coming out of the fog and they just seem like, you know, unstoppable forces um, and the way they're shooting their guns at them. Like in like I was curious, like how many of them had never seen a tank before or something? Because like, you know, it was kind of a new invention for warfare right at the time. I think that was the implication was that like the Germans, their technology fell behind as the war as the war dragged on. And then things like tanks rolled in and they're like, holy shit, what, what do we do with this? It was largely a war of innovation on both sides, you know, and trying new things to try to break the stalemate of, of trench warfare. Um, the. The French and the English were the first to, to drop their tanks. Um, I think it was the Mark IV for England and the F1 for uh, for France. And they were the ones that were on the cutting edge of tank technology, for sure. The Germans did end up you know, with their own, but it was a little bit later uh, into the war. Now, that one that they used in the movie, the one you referenced earlier, I believe that was... saint Chamond. Yes, I believe that was a later model towards the end of the war. So it maybe could have been one of the first times they'd seen it. I did find a little bit about the tanks here. Um, so between 350 and 400 were produced between April. This is for the French. Uh, between April 1917 and July 1918, it, uh, the Saint Chamond weighed 23 tons, had a theoretical top speed of 7.5 miles per hour. In quotes, almost never achieved in action and was armed with a 75mm heavy gun. It was widely disliked by its operators because of its poor trench crossing ability and because its heavy nose often causes it to bog down. By the end of the war, it had been all but phased out to be replaced by the Renault FT. One surviving saint Chamon is in a museum in France. So maybe I got that backwards then. I guess the FT comes after, and I said it wasn't the F1, it was the FT. Sorry, well, Rusty on my tank history. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's so specific. I don't, I don't blame you. Well, and we see that, like, it nosedive in and, like, run over a dude, but then we see one cross. But, like, I was thinking about how, like, yeah, these things are unstoppable unless they get stuck. 
worst case scenario if you're in a tank is you get overrun from other sides and they drop grenades inside someone shoves a grenade in in yeah. you know in in the openings that you have yeah actually and then all of a sudden now you're in a little death trap one of the things that sticks out to me about the movie was i felt like they needed well i mean I, I, again you have to make it viewable but they needed more artillery honestly and that was one of the things about the tanks that they were so damn slow that they were super prone to uh, artillery shells because you could just see them advancing and you could just roll in a barrage on top of them and just like, you know, blow them, blow them sky high. Uh, if they were on the advance like that, maybe because it was a counter attack and they would have been kind of shelling their, their own, own folks. Forces, right. Right. Exactly. You know, but I mean, yeah. that was, that was something that happened. And even that attack, that, that the attack that started with the German attacks when, when, when Paul and them are, are rushing across and get the trenches, that started without any artillery barrage, which I thought was actually kind of interesting because a majority of them rolled in with the creeping barrage, which is what uh, Katz talks to them about in the very first scene when they first get like indoctrinated uh, in the movie. Uh, that was extremely common uh, where they would, a tactic that was developed later on in the war, you know, is incrementally roll up your artillery and then have your troops fall in literally directly behind it. It was highly coordinated uh, you know, attack, obviously, because if you get it wrong, well, <laughs> you know, people are going to go go flying. I have a I have a question that's sort of overall rules of engagement that I was curious about. And I feel like we probably learned about this in school. So hopefully you can enlighten me. But what I, I could I thought there was a some sort of like rules of engagement that were set up. And then basically all sides decided not to abide by that. And they used gas and they used things like flamethrowers. And wasn't there some sort of like, you know, Geneva code in place at that time? No, actually uh, that, that, that comes later um, largely as a result of some of these things, but the war, the first month of the war. And so we're going back to 1914 was, was actually highly mobile. Um, and the Germans had what was called the Schlieffen plan. And they wanted to uh, basically swing in uh, the Northern parts of Germany and, and basically, as I said, brush their sleeve against the coast uh, and you basically smash. And, and basically like if you picture a, a pivoting a hammer, you know, that the head of the hammer is going to be push, pushing through the English channel, you know, and down into France and then smash down into Paris. Uh, they almost succeeded actually. And they had been raw, drawing up these plans since the 1800s uh, and Audubon Bismarck and had developed all these things. Um, it's actually wonderfully described in uh, in a book, um, which was uh, by Barbara Tuchman, The Guns of August. Um, I believe it was a, a Pulitzer Prize winner, potentially. I, I think she won some accolades for it. It's a very good book, but it documents only the first part of the war in tremendous detail. Uh, if anybody's interested in the start of World War I, uh, before it breaks down into the trench warfare and gets into uh, the horrible things that you're mentioning, it's wonderful who dug in first do you are you do you know if it was the french or the Germans? i assume the french right it was largely just human nature uh really when you think about it because this is the first time a lot of these weapons have been unleashed on anybody just machine guns and artillery period and the casualties were so high and people were just literally getting mowed down like grass like well like 100 like stories of bodies just being stacked up so high that gunners had to literally go out into the field and remove bodies from their line of sight so that they could shoot more advancing soldiers people just needed to find a way to survive um the, the carnage in the first month of the war was just so horrible it's just kind of naturally evolved that way in order to, for soldiers to protect themselves the, the the mantra was to attack 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 and the defense was seen as something that was was inferior um, well, modern weapons prove that to be, you know, completely false looking back, you know, uh, over a hundred years later, we, we know that, but this was trial and error for a lot of these commanders to start the war and completely contradictory to military theory leading up to that. Um, going back to even the civil war or the Franco-Prussian war in 1870, 71. Um, so this was trial by fire, sadly. Yeah. Speaking of trial by fire, like what, so 
the invention of of bringing in a flamethrower or bringing in gas weaponry what like how does that come about is that just something that they realize they could spray into the trenches like because i feel like it wasn't something that was there at the beginning of the war, right? No, it was not. Before you answer that real quick, like, oh my gosh, the freaking scene with the flamethrowers in the trench, that's one of the most striking moments of the whole film that I'm going to remember forever, I think. It's just them burning everybody in those trenches. That was so horrifying. It felt like that was, to me, based, and maybe this isn't historically accurate, but to me, it felt like it was the first time that these soldiers were seeing tanks and flamethrowers at the same time. Um, I, Shoot, I'd have to be... I don't know when the flamethrower was introduced. It was 1916 for the, for the tanks. I mean, this was this was supposed to be like one of the last fi- battles, so probably not. <laughs> it probably came before that. <laughs> I, I agree. Um, tanks tanks were 1916. Um, I think the gas was maybe as soon as 1915. Uh, I believe it was the Germans that actually uh, used it first. And they actually were not even able to lob it through artillery shells. Um, I think they actually just waited to the wind to blow and they just walked out and as far as they could get in a no man's land and just opened up canisters of gas and let the wind blow over the enemy trenches. I was reading that it was it was like chlorine gas at first too, right? Like chlorine and then eventually mustard gas was introduced. Yeah, there was a couple of different hyphosgene gas as well. Um, it's all horrible, absolutely which is actually something they didn't really show that much of in the movie. Yeah. To be honest, they just showed the aftermath of it. I, there was no like, there was no real gas sequence where like they all had to put their masks on because gas was coming in and they were going to die. Like I, that was a terrifying moment in the book. And I was, I did miss that. Like we see the after effects of when they find that group in the warehouse, but there was no big gas sequence on the front lines. It's kind of odd that that was not there. Yeah. And seeing soldiers like visualizing and seeing the soldiers versus reading, like running around, clutching their, you know, their chest and literally coughing up, you know, their lungs and, you know, just like agonizing, horrible agonizing deaths as they're literally burned from the inside out as they, you know, inhale this stuff uh, or seeing people in the, in the, in the, um, uh, in the hospitals too, you know, dealing with the, dealing with the gas wounds and the burns that happens when it gets on your skin. Even the Tolkien movie had a had a gas scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as true. much as that movie wasn't that good, otherwise it did have a gas sequence. <laughs> yeah, as the war goes on, they do and you know get the ability to lob those gas shells um, through artillery and land them directly in and on enemy positions, and that's absolutely terrifying to just be chilling in your trench and then be like, okay, now it's just gas shells are raining from the sky and you have literally seconds to try to get your mask on. Putting masks on in mind, I liked when they they were kind of testing the soldiers when they were first marching out and they was like, gas, gas, and they all put their masks on and he kind of helped his friend first and then put his on and then the the commander was like, you're wearing that for the rest of the march and like how how serious, again, that's their their naivete is they, they didn't know how quickly, you, you can't help someone and then help yourself because you're dead by that time. So for, for this like seasoned general to, to or commander to say, like, keep it on. And, and that kind of did make me think we were going to get another a further gas sequence later. I was kind of glad we didn't get the extended um, training sequence because they it made it feel like they were just immediately on the front lines. We got like one scene of them running together. And that was about it as far as training goes, um, which really highlighted how like poorly trained they were. But in the book, we have this whole sequence with this you know, drill sergeant character who's awful to them and they end up getting like revenge on. And that feels a little too similar to um, Band of Brothers to me. <laughs> and which may have been partially inspired by that, although that's like mostly a true story. So I, I don't know. But like it would have felt like retreading something we've probably seen already in war movies. And I think it was smart to kind of omit that. And, and yeah, there actually wasn't a Himmelstoss character in the movie 
at all, actually. Really, there was like a couple little moments, but he was just kind of like this obscure, like you said, like drill sergeant that just kind of like showed up, barked orders, and then that was yeah, it. Yeah, the guy who like tells him he has to wear the mask was kind of that character. I don't know if he was named the same thing, but no, I don't even know if he had a name. <laughs> yeah. The uh, sequence that I also wanted to shout out was harrowing when they would they're like in that train depot area. And this is like right before they find all the all the soldiers who are gas. It's so eerie. It's so quiet. Yeah. And they're finding they like I think they smell or find canisters or something like that of gas that has been used going through an abandoned city or town or depot of this kind like turned into a horror movie for a minute there. It did. Yeah. And, and it, uh, you know, it reminds me of some some of those scenes in 1917 as well, because that that story is all about 1917, the film. Uh, Sam Mendes directed. So would you guys recommend I need to see that now? Because I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You should definitely see it. Would you say it's on par with this movie, though, as far as, like, quality? Yeah. I would yeah. say so. It's okay. pretty close. Yeah, quality. Cinematography-wise, I would I would say so. Okay, cool. It's, it's different, though. It's got a completely different vibe in terms of okay. how it portrays the war, I would say. Interesting. Well, we also get this sequence that I think is so fundamental, and that's with Paul stabbing the soldier up close and personal. And then I thought they did a great job of like showing the sort of frantic, brutal fight. And then him all of a sudden feel humanity for the guy. Like it just comes over him. He's trying to save him. That that moment was horrifying and it was, but it was also just so heartbreaking, right? To see that moment that we talked about, we highlighted from the book where, it, you know, he realizes that they're just poor devils like us. That's exactly the line from the book. Like they're, they're, just a bunch of guys who are around my age who got, you know, signed into the military service, don't know what they're doing and are out just out here trying to survive. Having just rewatched They Shall Not Grow Old, I was struck by the British soldiers. They would talk about like taking pr German prisoners and how they were friendly with them once they were captured and how they would become docile. They wouldn't want to fight. They were actually helping carry some men in stretchers like Germans would help carry like British soldiers on stretchers to, you know, out of the battlefield area. Um, and just like how quickly you can turn that over that that over in your mind and ha and that's kind of what we see here with Paul is like once he has a moment to reflect once he sees this person and i think in the book it's implied that it's some some form of he thinks he's going to be captured so he should yeah. do right by this person and show that he has some a sense of humanity at so least begins that way yeah it starts that way but i don't i don't get that from this scene in the film it really did feel like it was just from he felt remorse and he wanted to save this person in that moment um, and it's so tragic too because it's moments before just like two moments before, if he had if he had changed his mind, that someone's a human life that that was you know forever changed and, and gone, and that's like the tragedy of it all, right? Is if everyone felt like that all at once, if everyone felt this is senseless killing, the war you know could have been stopped right away, and all these people could have realized they're all not that different. Yeah, that that scene was absolutely brutal. How all of a sudden, he, like that, you could see him struggle with his his his, his emotions there, like just so quickly, and then. He just can't be in the same shell hole, but he's trapped there with this guy because the alternative is I leave the shell hole and I die or I stay here and and struggle with this horrible act that I just committed. And I have to sit here and watch this guy or you could finish him off. But obviously, he couldn't bring himself to do that either. And it's just to see him grapple with that, um, you know, it's so much more visceral to witness than it is to read it in the book. And the acting, I think, was was so well done by by both um, the, the French soldier and and obviously Paul really portrays that he shoves he crams dirt into his mouth yeah. in an attempt to to kill him and to silence and then him when he has to yeah. silence him and then when he has his like second thoughts he starts like cleaning him and pulling it out 
Um, so to see that reverse course and then like if he could take back the stabs, he would. I think it's so important in a movie like this to, I don't know, it's like a concept that pervades a lot of war films where you're on one side and the other side is the enemy. And it's, you know, this reflects what how people feel in real life, of course. But like we're, we as viewers start to feel that way sometimes in a lot of war movies. And you view the enemy and you view mowing them down as like a good thing. You know, you get you get you get caught up in that like us versus them mentality. And I love that this scene totally breaks that and shows the horror that is that is on both sides and the humanity that is on both sides. And I think that's essential to the message of the book. Um, So I think it was this is like one of the best moments of adaptation to me in the film. I remember thinking about that when the French were pushing in with the with the tanks. I was like, ultimately, we should be cheering that the that the French are are pushing in and stopping Germany's spread in through Europe. But like, you know, we've when you in the sense that America was on the allied side. Right. Interesting to think about being on the other side of it and just connecting with somebody on a human level. We've seen we've gone through these these struggles with these characters, German characters up to this point, and we've seen that they are no different than than any other human on the planet. Um, And so when the French do come in with the tanks, we are terrified and we want the characters to make it and get out of there, Um, even if we don't necessarily agree with their their the the reason why Germany is involved. And, you know, I think that goes back to the senselessness of how the soldiers you can't you can't hate all Germans because of this, because so many of the soldiers weren't there for the reasons that they thought either thought they were, or I guess what I'm trying to say is the people that were making the decisions and to go to war and to be at war um, were to blame much more than the soldiers on the ground that were often demonized by the other side. And so as often the case with war, right? Um, and even the start of World War One is just a, a series of mishaps by by world leaders. I, I, again, plug Barbara Tuchman's book. Uh, expertly uh, handles that situation and and discusses it from all viewpoints uh extremely well done and yeah and and, and, and and all in all you end up with these world leaders that have been plotting and planning for this event world war one they knew it was going to break out eventually but no one knows what the catalyst is going to be and then boom once the dominoes start to fall is that because of the like interlacing alliances that had been formed to where like if one country declared war on the other it was going to draw all these other like they knew it was just going to draw everybody in yeah the entangling alliances was a big a big part of it uh extreme nationalism uh played into it as well um the uh militarism everybody's keeping these massive standing armies of like millions of soldiers ready to strike and we got all these new weapons we got to use them right <laughs> exactly and they, and they like i said they came up with plans like how to mobilize and who can mobilize faster and how many weeks it's going to take the russians to get into germany so the schlieffen plan will work you know and like all of these things wasn't that a huge deal too was that like russian russia was a catalyst for conflict breaking out elsewhere because they moved all their troops to the edge of their country right and like that, that was seen as an act of war almost um so so if you guys are familiar with Franz Ferdinand, uh, you know, yeah. the band. Uh, I know the band. <laughs> the band, yeah. So uh, this was a part of the, the entangling alliances here where the uh, assass- his assassination in uh, by Serbian nationalists in, uh, in Sarajevo uh, actually led to the Austro-Hungarian Empire to declare war on Serbia. And Serbia was actually like a, you know, had been imperialized by Austria-Hungary and they wanted their independence. So when they did that, uh, Serbia, largely a Slavic state, Russia, large Slavic country, comes in and declares war on Austria-Hungary to defend Serbia. And then this is where it all breaks down. Uh, So then Germany is obligated to come in and protect Austria-Hungary and France is obligated to come in and protect Russia. And 
England is neutral throughout this entire thing, which is interesting. And it's the Schlieffen plan where the Germans march through neutral Belgium that actually draws England into it because they had an alliance with Belgium to protect their neutrality. And that is really what started this whole thing was this one spark, so to speak. Can you tell me how Lawrence of Arabia gets brought into this too? So <laughs> <laughs> that's It's funny how like a lot of movies build up my World War One knowledge. <laughs> yeah, isn't it interesting how, how we... we weave this web of uh, knowledge where we get things from. Um, that is just a, a, a whole separate theater of the, when the English um, are basically fighting, I think it was the, uh, the Turkish um, uh, Ottoman Empire out there, essentially for like natural resources and stuff, you know, and having control over, over the Middle East and a lot of the oil, which is becoming a very important uh, resource for modern warfare, obviously. I'm a little rusty on his story, but he was kind of almost like this like marauding bandit type of character. And there was, you know, there is some, he's been largely romanticized, obviously, but there is some interesting stories about him. Um, uh, if you wanted to dick around a little bit, I haven't seen it in the movie, so I can't, yeah. <laughs> I can't speak to those. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, as problematic as a movie from the sixties can be excellent movie in terms of filmmaking and, and historic precedents. And it's, it's a great movie. There's some racism. In it, so. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh. So in the last bit of plot here, Erzberger learns of Kaiser Wilhelm II's abdication and receives instructions from Field Marshal Paul von Hindenburg to accept the Allied terms. Paul returns to his unit and sees them celebrating the war's imminent end. He finds a wounded Chaden who gives him Franz's scarf. Paul and Kat bring him food, but Chaden distraught fatally stabs himself in the throat with a fork they brought him. On November 11th, Erzberger's delegation signs an armistice set to take effect at 11 a.m. After learning of the ceasefire, Paul and Kat steal from the farm one last time, but Kat is shot by the farmer's son and dies before arriving at an infirmary. Fredericks, who wants to end the war with a German victory, orders an attack to start at 10.45 a.m. Paul kills as many French soldiers as he can before being bayoneted from behind seconds before 11 a.m. Paul stumbles out into the trenches and marvels at the end of conflict as he dies from his wound. A short time later, a newly arrived German recruit that Paul had saved in the combat finds Paul's mud-caked body and picks up Franz's scarf, but not the dog tag that acts as the identifier of dead soldiers. As a result, Paul's death is not recorded. They're celebrating the end of the war, and he decides it's a good idea to go try and steal another goose or, or maybe get eggs. I'm not sure if, what the plan was. Um, and yeah, farmer returns, um, and then the son, the son is given this like hateful stare. And then, um, I was, I, I wasn't sure where they were going with that, but then the son shows up in the woods and shoots cat. I was confident that that was going down <laughs> in that way. Yeah. It felt very, it felt like maybe they were sort of implying like generational violence, like, like passing so, on yeah. the legacy of violence and, maybe? The, and the hate and the memories. Well, and we see that with German too, right? Like the Germans are going to deal with a lot of that leading to world war two. So maybe some sequel bait here. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's dark. I shouldn't have said that. But hey. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, uh, I kind of figured that this is how it was going to go down because we have like Chekhov smoking goose farmhouse. The comeback again. I was just like, I felt really I just, like, I, I, It felt like something bad was going to happen. But then when they escaped, I was surprised. But then there was like when he walked way out into the woods, like don't ever walk like. No, by yourself. Well beyond like your sight. And, and you know. Didn't he say he had to pee too? It's like, dude, you can do that like one tree. Yeah, away. go out to pee. You were just shitting next to each other earlier in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Just go pee on a tree that's right there. I think the thing that gets me about that scene too is just how deathly quiet it is. It's like the only time in the movie where it's actually just 
quiet and that just makes it so much more eerie and you're like yeah some, something's going down here you know someone's gonna die today totally and then we get this this order by the general and like i don't know i guess there's like potential that they could have done this but it just feels to me like i don't buy that these soldiers would have done it like or they would have half-assed it and they you know what i mean like they know the war's about to end and they're already like celebrating and and drinking and like the idea that any amount of them would have would have gone through with this i find it hard to believe but i don't I don't know for sure. Like maybe it could have happened and maybe some would have listened. I don't know. I, I agree. It was definitely an addition that that was like, you know, necessary, I guess, for this final push. But I almost would have preferred it to be this random act like it is in the in the book where he's kind of just out and about and he's shot. Yeah. And you could have even like had the news come out after he dies. But like, yeah, the it's like to the second and it's this completely pointless. Now, it does drive home the like pointlessness of the violence, but man, um, it kind of gives it kind of gives the movie a villain. Right. And the villain is this general and we're all mad at him at the end. He got Paul killed. That shifts the, you know, war is the villain of the book. And instead, it becomes more about this general. This lesser character, this this lesser general, no less, too, you know, just in charge of the sector. Um, I mean, these, these events had happened. There was fighting actually after armistice, but it was isolated and random, you know, but like you said, it does kind of take away from what, like you said, the, the book is all about and, and, and kind of deflects us away from the larger picture here and like gives you like this, this easy scapegoat, you know, in it all, which, which kind of cheapens, like you said, the, the overall effect of what uh, Remark was going for and ultimately did, you know, with his novel. Yeah. I mean, it's just absolute madness, that charge at the end. And, and, and it does make you feel furious that this is even happening. Well, think about it from the French side, too. Like yeah. you're, the French are all like drinking together and celebrating. And then like they're they're like that one commander. hears something at the last second and he's like, prepare for attack. And uh, they have to like, you know, contend with that. It just feels like that that ultimate cheap shot backhand sort of like sucker punch. Totally. I felt it was interesting too how they portrayed Paul in that scene because he was like, you know, had blood in his eyes and because everything had been taken from him at this point too. So they, you see this, this, the shift in him where he is now the animal that, you know, Remark talks about in the book and he's the beast. And he was just like, this is it, you know, I'm, I'm going to die here anyways. I'm going to, and, and he just loses himself in, in it because everything had been taken from him, you know? And uh, even with there's a line in the book where he says we we fought to be re- like to be revenged like he's it seems to me like he's he's out for vengeance in this moment for cat who just died randomly but it's just like he's just out because he can't he's he's dead inside he's just lost all sense of any like he's just an animal like you said and and um I, yeah i think that was effective in, in that in that moment there's one thing actually you guys probably clear this up for me at the very end when right before he dies and he gets stabbed and he tumbles down the the bunker with uh with the soldier that he's fighting when they both stand up did he just like pause and stare at him and they're both just like staring at each other it felt similar to the moment in the um in the 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 shell hole that we saw earlier where it was like he got a moment to actually see the other guy and it felt like a little bit of that humanity was starting to come back and then and then he gets stabbed in the back yeah yeah. this moment where he has lost all hope i think reflects back to some of what cat was saying as well where like well, I guess Kat was more excited to go back, but what we've seen from other soldiers saying, like, what what is my life like when I get back? Like, he, he's been so wrapped up in this war for such a long time that I think that he sees all of his friends are gone. He's kind of lost his will to live. And this final push feels so futile. And he's like, why why wouldn't I just die here? Why, you know, like, like why not fight all out? And like you said, maybe get some vengeance here and then 
and it, I think in that that battle, if that final battle encapsulates the entire war, like the theme of the entire war is just how senseless it is and how slamming slamming millions of people against each other just to die in piles for, you know, and the, the text at the end of the film is just as stark as the end of the book where it's kind of talking about like no ground was gained, no ground was gained through the whole war and just millions of people died, an entire generation of people. I think they said somewhere between like 17 and 20 million people died, yeah. right? In World War yeah. One, Yeah. Unbelievable. And 3 million in that one spot alone. Yeah, that, that part of France. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, so we've arrived at the end of the movie. Um, I think it's time for us to cast our votes on which was the better version. Um, you know, it's it's highly subjective, but definitive. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to go last as our guest. That's usually how we do it. No um, pressure. Do you, want, do you want to start, James? Sure. Yeah. This book moved me in a way that I mentioned in our first episode. It was it, it stands tall with the likes of like the diary and Frank or um, night by Eli Wiesel um, as, as like a snapshot of what it's like and the horrors of, of what humans are capable of. And like, it's this warning to future generations, right? It's like, you can, you can read this or you can watch this film and see like the blueprint of this is what we're capable of. Let's not get back here again. Unfortunately, we do enter another world war soon after, but having this on record and, and having the book represent mul multiple different people's voices throughout World War One, not just one person's experiences, but it kind of culminates in a lot of the people who lost their lives and 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 giving them a voice and telling their story in ways I found was very powerful. Um, but being someone who is so visual and is so affected by visual mediums, this film took me on a journey unlike any other war film. I think that it's especially World War One film like it's. It's the kind of film that, again, you look at as the example of like, if everyone could just watch this and really, really empathize with with all the other sides, you would you would hope that we could squash conflicts before it gets to this point, because as bad as this is, something breaking out today could be worse. You know, we could see the end of the, the human civilization. And so for us to not look back and learn from history um, feels it just feels silly to me and so I, I just feel like this is a powerful project in general but the movie took me to a place where i felt i was experiencing it and um it's just absolutely gorgeous like a film that's like showing beauty in this like gore and just death and destruction like the worst of humanity um there's something profound about that and so and, and i think that the movie moved me a, l a little more without discounting all of the things that we've talked about that kind of maybe take away. I think there are enough additions here for me to, to take the movie. Uh, so I, I'm largely on board with you, man. I, this movie was pretty astounding. I think it made some really smart adaptation choices. Um, I, I think there are moments where it translated the beauty of the language into the beauty of film. Um, it's the best war war one movie I've ever seen. Um, it's such an interesting war in the sense that looking back on it now, it, it just feels so senseless. Whereas w when I look back on World War II, it feels like you can like understand why something was happening a little more clearly. Yeah. Like there's a good and a bad. Now, I mean, obviously that's oversimplified, but you know you can look at what was going on with the Holocaust and go, well, clearly that's bad, and we should have fought it. Um, but World War One, there's nothing like that. It's just this like bunch of countries got in a war and it's like oh shit that's really awful and millions of people died um so a movie that's messy and shows the senselessness um is really good um all that comes back to the book though uh eric maria remarks novel created a genre um it was one of the first 
uh, war uh, books written by a veteran like this, and it opened the door for so many new novels to come out after this that you know are, are absolutely incredible. Um, and you know, getting banned by the Nazis and getting burned—it's just such a historically important piece of fiction. Um, and again, reading it today, I was struck by how brutal it was, how beautiful it was. That the language was absolutely, um, you know, incredible um, and so highly quotable. Uh, I just loved all of that. So ultimately for me, I'm going to give it to the book because I think the historical context, the language, and, um, you know, the fact that it created a genre, all of that comes back to get to me to like say, I think the book's going to win out. Um, and I had a little bit, a couple of qualms I've brought up throughout with the adaptation. Um, but yeah, not, not to take away anything from this movie that I think was very good. Um, so it sounds like Tom, you're going to be the tiebreaker. I had a feeling we were going to end up in this scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually had a feeling, uh, as well. Um, so this was not an easy call for me. Um, and I, th- I think one of the things that, that struck me is I've seen a lot of war movies. I've read a lot of war books novels like this and you know tons of primary sources i i, I think in using that as my backdrop and and listening to both which guys what you guys said i i think the the movie is going to take it for me um wow. and okay. i think simply because it's like you said i think it's the best world war one movie that i've i've ever seen um and i think it's the most accurate depiction of that and even with the qualms that and i do agree with you luke that um, I think the cinematography of it, James, is what really kind of sets it apart for me because the the feel, the cinematography, the music, and just like you like you were saying, the how they incorporated the all the the emotion into the feels and, and the interpretation of it all for the audience in the movie did a good job of capturing the brutality of it. And they did have a lot of violence in the movie and just very quick little, you know, little spurts here and there, which is you know, goes into a little bit more detail in the books, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like, especially in today's day and age too, I think the movies really resonate with people. I think uh, we are just becoming more and more visual anyways. Um, and, and seeing that so well done on screen was, uh, was really powerful uh, to me overall. So it looks like the, the movie's going to take it in this case, but I, I think that there, you know, I think that there's, there's a good reason to look back at remarks uh, novel and think about the anti-war sentiment you know i mean that that and, and that carries through with the film as well hey, and for all the book lovers out there like me um it really the language is really incredible so yeah don't overlook don't overlook this book i don't want to take anything away from the book at all i, I know it was it, it's it's a it's a wonderful read it's actually a, a quick read as well um and so it's definitely if you're gonna if you're interested at all pick it up read it and remark we, we talked about this last week it, he was a war veteran he fought in world yes. war one and he like spent time in hospitals and talked with a bunch of soldiers and like a lot of the stuff that is in the book is true accounts in a sense it's just been fictionalized through the character of paul um but yeah it's it's that weird like gray area of fiction nonfiction. I, i'm biased too i mean I'm, I'm, a, I'm a history teacher so i you know so for me like fiction versus nonfiction. i have to like if i'm gonna read a book I go with the nonfiction every time. Right. Um, so I have to admit my biases as well. That's fair. And, but I think you said, Remark being a veteran, it's, it is very authentic, you know, and it actually reminds me of uh, actually one of the books you had me read in college of the things they carried um, from Vietnam. And yes, I talked about that, that last week too. As, yeah. Still probably my favorite war novel. I mean, amazing. And, and, and purely a work of fiction, but that was, that was a, uh, a poetic work for sure again but fictionalized version of real events because right. he fought in vietnam yeah, yeah. yeah that was yeah incredible i don't know about you guys but um in doing a lot of research and watching other world war ii material world war one material um and covering this has been so heavy for me and i just am like 
I'm re- war is bad, and I'd like to <laughs> I'd like to get out of war headspace yeah. for just a little while because it's it's been really heavy, and and you know I think that's it's profound in in that way as well. So hopefully we can all just be thankful for that we're in the situation that we're in currently, and we're not in the trenches in World War One. But I mean, hey, there's a war going on right now, though, and which we should. That's all... what I was gonna say, and and like think about others who are who are going through struggles and and yeah. lend support where where needed. Tons of brutality, yeah. and that's that's the point of these things too. That's why these were written. That's why these movies are made. So, all right, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. Um, it has been a joy to have you on again. One of my one of my oldest friends. We when did we meet each other? When when I don't know you were. Um, I think 10 I was or something. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> I was probably like six or seven. Wow. Uh, honestly, um, yeah, I came to your brother uh, Ben's birthday party, yeah. and that was I was we we had this whole thing, and I think you and and Steve and Caitlin and everybody were there. So so we've been we've been friends for you know thirty years at least. Yeah, so it, that's pretty amazing. Oh, pretty close, <laughs> almost, almost, almost thirty yeah. years. But still, hey, at this point, let's just say thirty. <laughs> <laughs> Round up. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that would be when I was six. <laughs> so not, <laughs> yeah. Probably more like 25, but yeah, my math's not great. Uh, anyway, thanks so much for joining us, man. I think you, you provided an awesome perspective, and, and this was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, I had a blast, um, and I, I would definitely do it again. So it was, it was really cool. Uh, thanks again for having me on, and uh, and, I, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for all the cool book recs as well uh, for all of our listeners, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can put it in the... Uh, in the episode notes or something too, you know? <laughs> yeah, give me, send me a list and I'll, I'll include them in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. Shout out this particular coverage, All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, we'd love to hear it and we'd love to hear from you. Make sure that you connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. We're also on TikTok and YouTube. Make sure to like the video. Make sure to subscribe over there as well. Yeah, I just put out a new TikTok uh, today. That it's like a clip from our fly coverage talking about the teleporter paradox. Um, check that out. It was fun. And that's the kind of stuff we do over there. Um, if you'd like to support us monetarily, um, we would love that. It would help us keep going. And the way to do that is go to patreon.com slash ink to film. And that's where we have all of our bonus content, including our bonus episodes. Like if we're going to cover the, uh, 1930s adaptation of this, um, that'll be on Patreon exclusively, uh, for a while. Um, and we'd love to have you over on there. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, that's going to be it for this project. Um, this has been a little bit unusual for us, doing something that's like highly historical, pretty somber, um, but it's been a good experience overall, and, and I'm glad I've read this book now, and yeah, I really enjoyed the movie, so I had a lot of fun with this one. I totally agree. It's, uh, it's heavy material, but necessary, yeah. I think, to engage with. Absolutely. All right, until next time. Keep adapting. Keep adapting.